Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 32 called Julian the Philosopher King. In the last episode, I suggested that the Battle of Strasbourg in AD 357 was a game changer in 4th century Roman history. Not only did it save Gaul from a serious Germanic invasion, but Julian's success caused a rift between him and Constantius as the latter could not ignore Julian's growing popularity. As you heard in the last episode, Constantius was no fool and after the Battle of Strasbourg he knew he had to stop Julian from becoming too powerful. So he resorted to every means he had at his disposal to muzzle his overly successful Caesar. He tried to disrupt Julian's loyal team in Gaul by recalling Julian's trusted second-in-command, Salutius Secundus, who was doubly important to him after the death of Severus, his able lieutenant who had helped him to victory at Strasbourg, but then died of natural causes soon afterwards. And since the army and the administration of Gaul were separate organisations, he appointed his own administrative minister, Florentius, to hinder Julian in every way he could, even depriving his troops of pay on the basis that tax revenues had fallen sharply in Gaul. Then, in January 360, he tried something that went just a bit too far. He ordered Julian to send troops east to fight the Persians. And it wasn't just a small part of Julian's army. He wanted four of his best auxiliary regiments, the Eruli, Batavi, Petulantes and the Celtae, together with 300 men from every other legion and vexillation, as the other units were called, to leave Gaul immediately to report to him in the east. This probably represented just under half of Julian's army and would have left Julian without any real military strength. Not surprisingly, this was the last straw for Julian. But to be totally fair to Constantius, he was certainly well within his rights. After all, he was the senior emperor, and ordering these troops east was fully justified since Shapur II had just launched another Persian offensive and succeeded in taking the major Roman fortress of Amida, which is in modern southern Turkey. I think if we were in Constantius's shoes, we would probably have done the same. But equally, no one could deny that it was also a very convenient way for Constantius to undermine Julian. So what could Julian do? Revolt against the emperor or go along with him? Now, historians are divided about what really happened. The official version was written by Julian himself, who was a prolific writer during his own lifetime, and thankfully many of his writings have survived. Of course, we also have the writings of the best historian of this period, Ammianus Marcellinus. Now, both of them say that Julian was loyal to Constantius, but what pushed him into revolt was the refusal of his troops to march east. They say that Constantius had misjudged the situation, especially the fact that the Gallic legions comprised Gauls who had no wish to depart for the east, leaving their families vulnerable to another Germanic attack. So, according to them, 
the army of Gaul mutinied of its own accord, and in February 360 in Paris, they proclaimed Julian Augustus for a second time. You may remember the first time had been immediately after the Battle of Strasbourg to prevent their having to march east. But most historians think this version of events was propaganda invented by Julian and Ammianus after the event in order to disguise the fact that the soldiers' acclamation in Paris was in fact engineered by Julian, who, working with his senior officers, decided that this was the right opportunity to make his bid for power. After being acclaimed Augustus, Julian then played a game of cat and mouse with Constantius by sending him messengers saying that despite his trying to carry out his uncle's orders, his soldiers had simply refused to march. When Constantius heard this, he was at Caesarea in Cappadocia and he's said to have flown into a rage. However, neither he nor Julian wanted an open civil war at this stage. Constantius was actually more worried by the Persians than Julian, and Julian was mindful of his own precarious position. He knew he had precious little support outside Gaul, and that Constantius was still seen as the legitimate emperor. He was Constantine the Great's son, after all. So, the result was a sort of phony war between them. Julian didn't rush into any immediate confrontation with Constantius. It was business as usual in Gaul. He launched a campaign against the Franks in the summer of 360. We know from coins he issued in 360 and 361 that he did use the title of Augustus, but some of his coins had both him and Constantius as Augustus, suggesting he wanted joint rule. He also maintained a dialogue with Constantius, proposing that troops in Spain could reinforce the Eastern Front rather than his own Gallic soldiers. But not surprisingly, despite the fact that he was still regarded as the senior emperor, Constantius's paranoia was now in overdrive. He even resorted to bribing the Germans to attack Julian, just as he'd done with Magnentius. And Julian was compelled in 361 to campaign against the Alemannic king Vadimarius, who had been paid by Constantius to attack Gaul. You might say this wasn't particularly smart of Constantius since it left Julian with little alternative but to go to war. But perhaps that's exactly what Constantius wanted, since maybe he felt it was a war he could win, just as he'd won against Magnentius. Certainly, he commanded most of the empire, and Julian decided that attack was the best form of defence, and led a significant number of troops down the Danube in boats into the Balkans, occupying Illyria with little resistance, and then setting up camp at the town of Nasus on the border with Thrace, and threatening Constantinople. Julian later claimed that he didn't want war and his advance was only meant to persuade Constantius that joint rule was in both of their best interests. But if this was true, it certainly didn't look to be working since Constantius sent troops to seize Aquileia in northern Italy to protect his control of Italy and the Adriatic. Indeed, there's no doubt that it looked as if Julian's revolt at this point would be short-lived. 
Constantius was still popular throughout most of the empire, especially in the city of Rome, which he'd visited in 357, and where he put up a massive obelisk in the Circus Maximus in homage to the old capital of the empire. Consequently, the moribund Roman Senate chose to support him, not Julian, despite Julian writing a letter to them begging for their help. Then, just as the empire looked to be on the brink of a hugely damaging civil war, something completely unexpected happened. Constantius died. On the way back from the Persian front, returning to Constantinople, he contracted a fever and died in Cilicia, that's in modern Turkey, as he was about to travel through the Taurus Mountains. He was 44 years old and had reigned for 24 years. Julian's gamble had paid off. What was even better for Julian was that, despite the civil war between them, Constantius had not changed his will, which nominated Julian as his successor. So Julian was now the sole and undisputed ruler of the Roman Empire. Catastrophe had been averted. On December 11th, AD 361, he rode into the city of Constantinople and the people turned out en masse to cheer him on. A new chapter for the Roman Empire had begun. Now, I think Julian's short reign from 361 to his early death in battle in 363 was a pivotal moment in the history of the fall of the Roman Empire because it marked the final end, in my opinion, of the classical Roman Empire. What I mean by this is that it was the last time that an emperor tried to recreate the golden age of Rome that, in my view, had been mainly destroyed in the crisis of the third century. Julian is, of course, best remembered for his epithet, the apostate. Apostate means someone who renounces a religion or political belief, and it was the term that Christians applied to him after his death because he was famously anti-Christian. But what this name doesn't capture is Julian's positive energy and his yearning to restore the great civilization of ancient Rome. I think Julian is much better described as the philosopher king because he saw himself very much in the tradition of the philosopher kings that Plato envisaged in his great work called The Republic. For the bookish Julian was, as described in episode 31, hugely well-educated and had read all of the classic ancient works by Plato and Aristotle and others, which are still fundamental to modern philosophy. His model as emperor was Marcus Aurelius, himself a philosopher and enlightened ruler, and Julian set himself on the path to becoming the same. To begin with, Julian was exceptionally economical. The story goes that shortly after his arrival in Constantinople, he sent for a barber. A richly dressed man appeared, to whom the young emperor said, I sent for a barber, not the head of the treasury. When the barber revealed the huge salary Constantius had paid him, Julian fired him on the spot. Julian cut back the extravagant expenditure in Constantius's court, but this was a trifle compared with the wholesale reorientation of imperial rule that he began to implement. 
For Julian wanted to undo the centralization of state that Diocletian had found necessary to maintain power in the years of military anarchy in the 3rd century, and which Constantine had continued with an emphasis on Christianity, as had Constantius. Now Julian wanted to reduce the imperial civil service and replace it with a strong civic authority, as had existed in Augustus's reign and was the hallmark of the Pax Romana. At that time, the central bureaucracy running the empire was tiny, only a few hundred civil servants. However, under Diocletian and Constantine, this had swollen to an estimated 35,000 people. Julian started to slim this down by giving more power for tax collection and civil administration to the cities in the empire. He strengthened their resources by no longer requiring cities to present golden wreaths to the emperor. Cities had traditionally given the emperor a golden wreath every year as a form of taxation. The wreaths could be huge in size and represented a considerable cost. Instead of paying for these, Julian urged the city councils to spend their money on road maintenance and other amenities which had been de-emphasised since the crisis of the 3rd century. A famous example of his focus on reducing central costs was his overhaul of the imperial courier system. The Romans had an extensive transport network for those travelling on government business, whether military or civil, throughout the empire. Thousands of staging posts and horses were maintained at enormous cost in all parts of the empire and used by all sorts of officials. Julian drastically restricted the perk of using this imperial transport system to essential business only and saved significant costs. In addition to this policy of decentralisation, Julian focused on bolstering the power of the Senate in Constantinople. His aim was to make it equivalent to what the Roman Senate had been in Augustus's era. To this end, he paid considerable respect to senatorial debates going on foot to the Senate instead of summoning the Senate to his palace, as his predecessors had done. He took part in debates, giving his own speeches and accepting the votes of the Senate as binding in law. He passed legislation protecting the rights of senators and always described himself as a servant of the state. Such egalitarian behaviour by Diocletian, Constantine or Constantius would have been unthinkable. Julian was intent on restoring the empire to what it had been before the crisis of the 3rd century and to the time of Marcus Aurelius and even the great Augustus. One area we haven't touched on so far is Christianity. And of course, this is the area for which Julian is most famous, reviled by Christian chroniclers in later centuries as the man who wanted to destroy Christianity. Historians have long debated his Christian policies and some regard him as an uncompromising pagan. But it seems to me that Julian was far more enlightened and broad-minded than his critics say. At no point did he consider for one moment a persecution of the Christians. Not only were the examples of this in the past, like Diocletian's great persecution abysmal failures that had only served to strengthen the moral appeal of Christianity, but they also simply did not appeal to Julian's liberal mind. 
Instead, his first priority was to establish a level playing field between Christianity and the pagan religions. Constantine had promoted the Christian church, which, as you heard in episode 24, he regarded as pretty much his own personal organisation. And he did this by exempting the clergy from taxation and channelling imperial funds into church building. He and his son, Constantius, also persecuted those pagan religions which were out of favour, actually removing gold and precious metals from their temples. This resulted in quite a significant wealth transfer from paganism to Christianity, which Julian wanted to stop. So, he banned all the tax advantages that the clergy and Christian church had enjoyed, and which undoubtedly had helped Christianity to expand. Then his second and most famous Christian decree was enacted on the 4th of February 362, the Edict of Universal Religious Toleration, in which all religions were cited as equal before the law. There's been a lot of debate about his true intentions with this edict, because religious toleration was actually already enshrined in Roman law, in theory at least. Paganism had never been outlawed in the Roman Empire, and the various pagan deities were still widely followed. Nevertheless, with this edict, he underlined that Christianity was not superior to other religions, going against both Constantine's and Constantius's attempts to make Christianity the official religion of the empire by associating it with the emperor and giving it tax advantages. However, some people see a more cunning motive as they believe Julian hoped to foment dissent between Christians. This was because the Christian church was already split between quite hostile factions, such as Arians and non-Arians, as well as other religious groups like the Donatists and Anti-Donatists in North Africa, which you heard about in episode 24. The Arian division was a particularly serious one and the Emperor Constantius had favoured the Arians in direct opposition to many of the Western clergy and in particular the Bishop of Alexandria, the famous Athanasius, whose prominent anti-Arian stance became a key pillar of the Catholic Church. Indeed, the historian Ammianus said that, quote, no wild beasts are as dangerous to man as one Christian to another, end quote. So it's probably true that by emphasising that all religions were equal before the law, Julian hoped to encourage division within the Christian church by preventing any Christian sect from imposing its will on another. However, his policies that have attracted the most criticism are those banning Christians from being teachers and lawyers. This was a clever ploy because it marginalised the Christian community. Julian's rationale was that Christianity is monotheistic and therefore not an enlightened religion, and as such it was at odds with a liberal education and the rule of law. It was a clever argument, and it stung the Christians hard. However, one thing worth highlighting is that Julian never persecuted Christians, and he enjoyed debates with Christians. One famous example was when he asked the blind bishop of Chalcedon, a man called Maris, why, if the Christian God was all-powerful, he did not restore his eyesight. 
The bishop is said to have replied, So I might not set eyes on a tyrant like you. Other emperors would have had the man executed, but Julian was said to have been delighted with the answer, describing it as very witty and a worthy reply. But whether you were a Christian or not, every contemporary was unanimous in describing Julian as an extraordinary man, since he was not just a scholar, but also a philosopher, an emperor, and above all, a soldier. And in the last year of his life, he undertook his greatest military expedition, since just as he wanted to restore the pagan gods and the golden age of the Roman Empire, so he wanted to destroy its greatest rival, Persia. And in March 363, he departed from Antioch with one of the largest Roman armies ever mustered in Rome's entire history, maybe 90,000 strong, with the aim of destroying Persia. Julian was set to meet his destiny in the east. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. I also wanted to let you know that I'll be offering my first book about the early part of this podcast called The Roman Revolution for free for five days on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk from the 4th to the 8th of August. So there's nothing holding you back from getting your free copy on one of those days. And you could be looking at detailed maps to find out just where Illyria is in the Roman Empire, or where did Aurelian's campaigns actually happen, or just what did the territories of Diocletian's Tetrarchy look like. And you'll also find lots of photos of key historical sites relevant to this period, like the Arch of Constantine, the Milvian Bridge, Diocletian's Baths, and much more. So just tap my name, Nick Holmes, or the book's name, The Roman Revolution, into Amazon, and it should show up. Oh, and of course, if you do like it, then a review on Amazon would be simply amazing. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. 